Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. Okay, so we've been doing a little series here through the, uh, through the Advent, and um, we've been considering just different truths uh, that are really kind of at the heart or central to, to this season. And um, this morning, we're going to think about love, love as it relates to Christmas, love as it's at the heart of this season, because that's what it's principally about. Um, you know, love is one of those things that's the most talked about. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but it's what it, both in terms of words and themes. Love is one of those things that people want to talk about, they want to write about, they want to sing about. Um, in every medium, really, from music uh, through to movies, from Facebook to real books, uh, from popular culture, I mean, there's so much focus on this thing called love and how it's expressed and how it should be expressed. So I want to take just a very few minutes this morning uh, to think about the love of Christmas and to think about the hope, the peace, and the joy that we've talked about in preceding weeks through this season and how all of that really is summed up uh, in this thing called love. Because it really is, as I said at the beginning, it's kind of at the heart of this season. This love I want to talk about this morning, though, is a very particular kind of love. It's not the kind of love that is principally expressed as either appreciation or affinity or commitment or fondness or even romance. This is a love that surpasses all of those expressions of love, even though it's probably true to say it contains all of them in some sense. But it's a very particular kind of love that I want us to think about this morning. This love is embodied in a person, the person that we have sung and worshipped about this morning, that person being Jesus. And this love that's found in him surpasses all other loves. It goes beyond all other loves. And it's unveiled to us in the story that we celebrate in this season of the year. The story of the coming of Jesus. And you know, the coming of Jesus is most significantly about the reality of God expressing to us in the gift of his son, a self-emptying, self-giving, self-sacrificial love. This is the love of Christmas. This is the love at the heart of this season. And it's found in Christ Jesus. And what he expresses in his coming is the love of God himself. That often gets lost in this season when there's just a whole milieu of other things going on, swirling around us. But that is really what this season is about. 
It's about the love of God expressed in Christ. I want to look at two very brief passages this morning that point us to that. The first, and these will be kind of well known to some of you, perhaps not to others. The first is taken from Luke's gospel where we have been kind of hanging out over uh, the last three weeks. Where Luke says this in the second chapter, verses 6 and 7. And uh, (coughs) these are the words that he uses. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. He was wrapped in clothes and placed in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Then I want to move to John's gospel. And this is probably the most well-known verse in the entire scripture. The one anyway that people are most familiar with. John 3, 16, and it says this, for God so loved, not because God was so angry with, God was so ticked off with, but because God so loved, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So Christmas love, God's love, is about Jesus and what Jesus has done. It's first expressed in his birth. And the reality of the infant in the manger. Think of the nativity image in your mind right now. Born to ordinary parents. Born in one sense in a very ordinary way. And in the most ordinary and humble of circumstances, right? And in one sense a very ordinary baby who would have looked just like any other child. but one who was conceived in an extraordinary way, in a very unique and supernatural way through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit of God. This was the Christ child, the infant in the manger, the babe placed in the feeding trough, a feeding trough stained with the saliva of animals, no less, but that same Jesus is the Bible tells us, we sang about it this morning, the Son of God. John records the reality of this truth and the ultimate expression of God's love when he writes this in his first letter in 1 John 4 and verse 9. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. How did God show his love among us? John tells us, he sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Not so we had a cute little story to celebrate in a tradition at a particular time in the year, so that we might live through him. This is love. The world has so much to say about love. John tells us here what the definition of love is in truth. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son. Again, in his gospel account, John makes clear 
in the passage we read earlier, that it was for love and God's love for the world that he sent his only son. So that whoever believes in him, right, might not perish but have eternal life. The first thing I want you to see this morning is just the nature of God's love expressed in the gift of his son, Jesus. Now, for many of us here, the majority of us here this morning, we know that to be a reality. Maybe this is something you're hearing for the first time. Maybe this is not a personal reality for you. Perhaps you've heard reference to it before. Maybe in another church, maybe on, on the radio or on television. Or you've heard other individuals speak about it. But it's not something that you personally know to be true for you. The Bible declares that Jesus is God's son. And it's because of God's love that he sent him into this world. The infant in the manger, the Bible declares to be the pre-existent, eternal son of God. In other words, he didn't come into existence at the moment that he was born to Mary. That was the point of incarnation, where God took on flesh, took on human form. But he is the pre-existent, eternal son of God, sent because God loves you. And even though for all of us, that is at some level incomprehensible, we can't understand that. The Bible declares that to be true. And many of us know through faith the experiential reality of that truth in our lives. But it doesn't stop there. He's not just the son of God. He's also the sacrifice of God. It was not enough for God to send his son into the world to model for us perfect humanity, which he did, or even to demonstrate the extent of God's love in the giving of his son, in the sending of his son. He had to send his son also to be the sacrifice of God for us. We talked a little bit about this last week, but there's a reality that sin separates us from God. The Bible is clear about that. It says that we're in our natural state blind to God and dead in our sins. So when he sent Jesus, he sent him not only to show us his love, but to be the sacrifice that was necessary to deal with that sin issue that's the blight of every single human person that alienates us from God, that separates us from him. But thank God he did send Jesus to be the sacrifice for us, each one. John finishes his scripture, the one we read a few moments ago in 1 John 4. We read verse 9 and verse 10. He says this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So he didn't just send us Jesus to show us what perfect humanity looks like, as I said a moment ago. He sent him to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin so that we could be made one again with God. And we did talk about this last week. The fact that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. 
Jesus' death covers our sin, each one of us. So we can be restored to God. God's heart is that you be reconciled to him, that you be restored to him, that you have life in and through him, that you know him personally through the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you know that the shame of your sin has been taken away in Christ. And that you now have access into the very presence of God. The author of a book called Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that. We have access into the immediate presence of God through the sacrifice offered for us by Jesus. And we did think about the revelation of that restoration last week. So here's the glorious truth in the infant. The infant in the manger was the son of God, but also the sacrifice of God. And you know, he has always been, and this is absolutely mind-blowing, as is his eternal pre-existence, but you know, Jesus has always been the sacrifice of God. He didn't become the sacrifice of God at the moment that he died on the cross, even though that was the outward manifestation of that reality. Why can I say that? Because John in the last book of the Bible, called the book of Revelation, says this, referring to Jesus as the lamb. He says he was the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So in that mind and heart of God, he was already that lamb slain for us. He was already God's sacrifice for us before he even came. And when he came, through obedience to the plan of God, he went to the cross, something we celebrate with Easter time, and in our place died as the sacrifice of God for our sin, as that atoning sacrifice that John refers to. There's one other thing I want you to see this morning. That Jesus is not just the son of God and the sacrifice of God. He is the savior of people. All kinds of people everywhere. In every epoch of history, in every culture, every ethnicity, it matters not. He is the savior of all people. The angel told Joseph and Mary that Mary, rather, had been conceived by the Holy Spirit and that she would give birth to a son. And then we read in Matthew 1.21 these words, you were to give him the name Jesus, because that's kind of a cool name. No, you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I mean, is that clear? Yeah. You are to give him the name Jesus, not just any name, the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The angel who appeared to the shepherd said, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Clearly, Jesus was not only the son of God, he was not only the sacrifice of God, he was God's intended savior of people. And he came first to Israel. But by extension through his death, that salvation is available to all people. We are here this morning, lest you be of Jewish origin, 
Most of us in this room this, this morning would be described as Gentiles because we're not Jewish. We're here this morning as the people of God, now in covenant with God, because Jesus is our Savior. Whenever we take communion together, we remember his body broken for us. We remember his blood shed for us, the blood of the new covenant. You know, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. He came to save his people Israel from their sins. He came to save the entire world. Tim Keller points out in his book, Hidden Christmas, that Christmas is not simply about a birth, it's about a coming. Right? That's what the term Advent refers to. It's about a coming. It's about the one that was appointed to come in the fullness of time to fulfill the purpose and plan of God as it relates to our salvation. Which is why John says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Tom Wright refers to this as God's rescue, rescue and renewal program. That God came to rescue us, which is what salvation means, but not just to rescue us. Not just to pull us out of the water because we were sinking but to then renew us, to make us who he always intended that we should be until we all got screwed up because of sin. He came to rescue us and to renew us. The Christ child in the manger is God's expression of love. It's a tableau showing us the love of God centered in Christ. And you know, that love by definition and by demonstration is action-oriented. To love in biblical terms is not principally to feel. Let me say that again. To love in biblical terms is not principally to feel. It's not principally about feelings. Now, that doesn't mean that our love shouldn't be imbued our love for God shouldn't be, and for one another shouldn't be imbued with passionate feeling. It should be. But it's not principally about that. It's not principally defined that way biblically. Love in biblical terms is action. It's about acts. It's about a will submitted to and aligned with God and acting accordingly. That's why you can love even when you don't feel like it. When the person next to you irritates you, or the person behind you or in front of you. You know, I'm just kidding. But the truth is, we can love when we don't feel like it. Now, we can. I didn't say we always do. Often, we just kind of retreat into our feelings, and we just kind of hang out there. Because it makes us feel good to feel yucky. And if we do that, we're forfeiting the possibility, the potentiality, the power of God's love to allow us to love God and others when we don't feel like it. 
God's love always causes action that's aligned with his will and it's consistent with his nature. God never causes us to love in a way that's inconsistent with who he is. This season of Advent, we see the ways in which God acts in demonstrating his unique and saving love. And I just want to mention three of them real briefly, and I'll be done. The first is this. He initiates relationally. God is always the initiator. He's the first cause. He's the one that takes the initiative. Remember what John said? That he loved us first and took the initiative, not the other way around. He initiates relations relationally in Jesus, God offers a personal and intimate relationship to each one of us in this room, to each person on this planet. He initiated that relationship by his coming, and he initiates that relationship today by inviting others into friendship with him. Jesus said to his disciples, who had responded by faith to his loving initiation, and I referred to this briefly last week, and I forgot to, to, to have this made into a slide for today. But this is what he said. Listen to this, because it won't be on the screen. I no longer call you servants, Jesus said. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I have learned from my father, I've made known to you. That is an incredible statement, isn't it? And I know that statement was made to a group of disciples that Jesus had, had chosen at that time to whom he was speaking. But the reality is, those words apply to all those that are in Christ. All those that have made a decision to respond and believe in him by faith, faith and then walk out that journey of discipleship with him in life. These were not just words limited to the 12 disciples that Jesus had called to himself. They are words of Jesus to you. He's called you and me into friendship with him. And if you're here this morning and, and you really don't know God through Jesus personally yet, this is an invitation he's extending to you. Because he loves you and he wants you to know him and be able to know him as a friend. Even though he will be your master as well. He will be your Lord, but he wants you to know him as a friend. Those are the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, and he speaks to us. The next thing is he gives unconditionally. There is nothing you have to do to get God to love you because he already does. You don't have to ingratiate yourself with God to get him to love you. He loves you right where you are, as you are now. Why? Because this is who he is. And he has decided to set his affection upon you. John tells us in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Notice the way he puts that. He doesn't say love is God. I remember some years ago I was in India with my brothers on vacation. And they have in India, they have these trucks that kind of barrel down the well, might be an exaggeration to call it a highway, but they barreled down the road, and they're brightly colored and painted, and on the back of so many of these trucks are these images that are like 320 million uh, Hindu gods with a small G, 
And uh, they have different characterizations, manifestations, and they're painted on these trucks. And so many of the trucks that I saw on the road in front of me had the words, love is God. Love is God. No, the Bible says God is love. The person of God has a nature that's made up of what the New Testament refers to as agape love, of unconditional love. There is a personal God whose nature is unconditional love, and the way that he gives is unconditionally. You know, we sing uh, a carol this time of the year called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Everybody know that one? Many people do. And this is how one of the stanzas goes. How silently, how silently, (laughs) the wondrous gift is given. Now, we sing these songs. Sometimes I think we don't really park and think about what it is we're singing. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. But the thing I want you to see about that stanza is that line, the wondrous gift is given. Because God gives the gift of his son and gives him unconditionally. But there's something we have to do with that gift. Something we have to do with God's initiative. We have to respond to the gift that God has given. We have to gratefully receive what it is that God's extended to us. You know, on Christmas Day, many of you, myself included, we will give and receive gifts. Gifts are given, and they're given by those who give them as an expression of love. And they're given freely to others. And the gifts that are given are prompted by that kind of love to want to bless others, right? I certainly hope that's why you're giving the gifts. If you're giving them for another reason, don't give them. We give gifts to others not because we're trying to ingratiate ourselves with them or we're trying to get something back from them or because they've earned it. We're doing it because we are prompted by love to bless them, and this is a manifestation of the way in which we want to bless them. But to experience the gift that's given, it has to be received. It has to be unwrapped. It has to be enjoyed. If the gift is rejected, neglected, or discarded, then the joy that could have come and be experienced by gratefully receiving it will be forfeit. Jesus comes as a loving gift. But you and I have to receive him. We can't reject him. Well, we can, actually. But if we reject him, we will forfeit what it is God intends for us which is reconciliation with our Father God, a living relationship with him, and as John said, life through him, the kind of life that Jesus said he came to bring, which is abundant life, a full life, a significant life. 
one governed by God himself through the presence of his spirit living in us. And lastly, he rescues, and when God rescues, he rescues completely. God saves us from death and judgment, such that even when we walk through physical death, unless Jesus comes before we experience that reality, every single one of us will walk through that dynamic. We will experience physical death. But Jesus promised, didn't he, in John 11, when he referred to himself, as we sang about him this morning, as the resurrection and the life, that even though we die, we will live. Because he's conquered death. And if we're in him, we're in the one who's conquered the last enemy. And resurrection is assured to us in Christ. Okay, he rescues completely from death and from judgment. Because in the, in the book of Hebrews, it says it's appointed unto every human being wants to die and then the judgment. That's not something people like to really talk about in the culture and in the epoch of history that we live in right now. The idea that we will have to answer to God. But the Bible says that is a reality. Death and it's followed by judgment. And Jesus rescues us. Completely. Not partially. Completely. Not exclusively. It's not just for a few people. It's inclusively. It's for every single one who will take that gift. Who will respond to God's initiative. And he doesn't rescue just for time. He rescues for eternity. We sang that new song this morning. And the refrain right at the end of that song was, in relationship to Jesus, that he is the everlasting light. The everlasting light. And when he rescues, he rescues forever. So this then is the love of Christmas. The love of God, that self-emptying, self-giving, self-sacrificial love demonstrated in Jesus, the Son of God, the sacrifice of God, the Savior of people. You know, St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, if you prefer, says God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Now, there isn't just one of us. And thank God, though, that he loves each of us as if there were only one of us. As we receive him, he brings us into a relationship of intimacy with God. We are blessed with an unconditional and what the Bible calls indescribable gift. You will never be able to describe sufficient to do justice to it, the gift that God has given us in love in his son. Which is why Paul says it's an indescribable gift. And through the spirit. That becomes our reality. And by God's grace, we're rescued completely. So let's stand this morning. I just want to pray. And um, I'm going to ask you.